Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Jennifer Liao, a director and producer whose first feature, End of Days, Inc., is a dark workplace comedy about a handful of file clerks who come to believe they're closing down a lot more than just their company. It opens in Toronto this Friday, February 19th at the Carlton Cinemas and plays the International Women in Film Festival in Vancouver March 11th, and you'll be able to watch it on demand in April. To my delight, Jennifer picked Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Edgar Wright's delirious 2010 adaptation of Brian Lee O'Malley's massive graphic novel cycle about a Toronto musician who falls for a whip-smart young woman named Ramona Flowers, only to learn that he has to battle her seven evil exes to be worthy of dating her. The movie is an absolute joy, a jukebox of wonderful moments played out in delirious cinematic style, and featuring a cast that just keeps getting richer and deeper every time we revisit it. Yes, I warn you, I mispronounce Ramona's name pretty early in the conversation, but only once, and I'm sorry. This is someone else's movie. Um, well, I, I do listen to the podcast, so uh, I have thought about it quite at length, uh, which movie I would choose were I invited to be on it. So it was actually very exciting to be invited because all of a sudden I was like, oh, this, is, this isn't theoretical anymore. I can actually pick a movie. Um, and of course, you kind of want to go, oh, well, maybe we should pick something that's a little more reflective of you know, your cinephile bona fides or whatever, that kind of thing. But ultimately, Scott Pilgrim's just one of those movies that uh, I've seen twice in the theater. Right. And it's one of those movies I went to, this, when I saw it at the theater the first time, I immediately wanted to see it again. And I've seen it many times since. And it just, it's like a shot of adrenaline for me. It's its one of those movies where um, I just find it so funny and entertaining and such, such an inventive um such an inventive, creative film that, you know, I would definitely put it uh, on a list of one of my favorites. So, uh, you know, and it's, yeah, it seems like it would be a fun one to talk about as well, because it really is, uh, you know, it really is a burst of, you know, color and sound and light and all that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I'm, a, I'm an Edgar Wright acolyte from way back when, and I was just saying that I'm amazed that it's taken almost a year of the show being around to get to an Edgar movie. Um, and this one being being the first is, is actually kind of great as well because it's his it's the one that stands apart from the other from the the Cornetto trilogy and it, it's a distinctive vision in a different way for him uh, and uh, of course it was shot in Toronto so it's now a time capsule of itself because most of the That's locations true, have yeah. changed and, and a lot of the places that it takes place are gone um, or different and uh I just introduced it at, at the Royal. Uh, now has a, a free flick Mondays thing we do every month, and mm -hmm. uh, it was it was a full house. It was our first capacity crowd, and it was just so much damn fun. And people, you know, in the five, little less than six years since it was released, in the people are discovering it and forcing it on their friends. And and as with apparently as with all of Edgar Wright's films, it picks up more momentum after the theatrical release than it does beforehand. Um, I think that's true. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And what's sort of interesting is that I actually came to the film from the books mm -hmm. um, when they actually announced that Edgar Wright was attached to the adaptation of Scott Pilgrim. I just thought that was a perfect marriage of subject matter and director. But I, 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 I was reading the books and it, it also felt like the books were a little bit of that thing where people would nudge you and go, hey, have you seen these yet? It was it was very much that way. Um, and I mean, I was even on the streetcar, I was on the college streetcar and a gentleman who I'm 90% sure was Don McKellar. I don't want to say 100% <laughs> because uh, I'm, I'm not entirely positive, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was him. He, he hopped on the streetcar and he noticed I was reading one of the Scott Pilgrim books and he got really excited and he said, is that the new one? And and I don't think it was at the time. I think it was. I think I was still catching up or something like that. And then he hopped off the streetcar bar for two stops or something like that. I, think, I like to think but, that Don McKellar is a sort of a sprite that just appears and disappears in, in Toronto yeah. to inspire people. And actually, if he got on at Bathurst, he would get off a couple of stops later. Oh, so, would yeah, he? Oh, okay. was him. All right. <laughs> uh, and Don is in the film. Of course, so, yeah. So you know, like the, the, that hat trick is completed. Um, it is. Like, it's a quintessential Toronto movie, and I think as a result it got undervalued like almost playing into the canadian identity crisis you needed 
an English filmmaker to make Toronto cool. Right, And right. then because it's doubly removed, doubly culty, the American culture just... Well, they didn't reject it exactly, but they didn't know what to do with it. And so it has this reputation uh, as this wonderful little... I mean, I, I see it bonding people for decades down the line as, as they discover... And like, oh my God, Beck wrote a song for this, and, and right, that's broken right. social scene, and <laughs> this is, and you'd like these things too. Like, it's it's a fantastic date movie because also it's about a terribly inept dater. Right, that's um, true. <laughs> but it like it plays to all of all of the strengths of Canadian cinema without ever falling into the traps of Canadian cinema, which is that certain things have to happen in a certain way to mandate the imagine to to satisfy the imaginary audience of of you know Canadian filmgoers who never really seem to exist. We're far more amorphous breed than telefilm would have you believe well i do think it's it's a it's a popcorn movie in a way that i don't know that canada has ever necessarily embraced or it's something maybe we don't find to be our strength Mm. possibly because of financial limitations as well i mean you definitely have to consider that and what i i mean what i liked about the books was really that idea that we were taking that kind of lo-fi you know, young urbanite trying to be creative, but really just hanging out, trying to date, all that type of thing. But then putting it through this worldview that's all video games and popcorn cinema and and comic books, and really giving it um, almost like a uh, an updated millennial version of a Walter Mitty esque character, or sure, something yeah. like that. Um, and that was really exciting. And I mean, it's it's uh, it's rare that people will say a Canadian movie is fun. You know, <laughs> that sort of this movie is definitely fun. And of course, I'm not you know I'm not putting down Canadian cinema in that way. I just right. mean like this this it was interesting that this was a movie that uh, was made by a British uh, director and an American company and all that type of thing. But it is very much a love letter letter to Toronto, and it really shows off Toronto in in in, in all its cold and snowy <laughs> glory as well as you know all of the exciting uh you know the exciting venues you can visit the the types of <laughs> the types of uh, places that you can see that um like Casaloma or going to or old school Lee's Palace and that type of yeah. type of thing where there there is a lot of uh you know creative energy and 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 people who are really you know um motivated to to yeah to live a creative life and to to be better people or to or to at least figure out themselves, if not to be better people, then at least to start the process of being self-aware. Yeah. And of course, at the end of the film, Scott Pilgrim earns the power of self-awareness, and that, <laughs> that is that is you know a, a first step into being kind of a more more evolved human being, a more a more mature human being, yeah. uh, as it were. I'm I'm glad that the power of self-awareness is still out there because I think I'm still chasing it, and someday, <laughs> you know, like I hope to level up by the time I'm fifty. It's very it can be challenging, uh, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's the wonderful aspect of the movie is that as much of a screw up as, as Scott is, and as hopeless as he is in so many things, um, in the movie in his head, which is I think what we're seeing, he's great at kung fu. He's a reasonably talented musician. He's maybe not confident with women but he's able to string knives along until Ramona really throws him for a loop and and Michael Sarah when he was cast was not someone I would have thought would be right for Scott and uh, the first time I met him was was on the interviews for Youth in Revolt mm-hmm. and I think they were just finishing the shoot for Scott Pilgrim it was definitely just around the corner and uh, he couldn't talk about it he was just he he was avoiding all conversation to the point where it got really difficult to talk about Youth and Revolt because I hated that and I would really (laughs) much rather than talking about his next picture (laughs) right Uh, and he was willing to talk about Edgar Wright's directorial approach and collaboration and and the way they were shooting but he just absolutely refused to divulge anything about the movie which is fine but limiting in the conversation and then the movie comes out and oh I get it you couldn't talk about this how would you how could you describe it to someone without showing it to them because the the approach the comic booky approach uh, even now, six years later, seems, I mean, it's audacious, but it seems undoable, unfilmable, that they're actually mm-hmm. translating the... You, it's one thing to use the comics as storyboards. Um, people do that, and it works. And they've definitely relied on that. Um, Edgar told me, I think during the DVD interviews, uh, that he had really... He'd almost killed himself trying to match uh, an angle for the sneaky <laughs> Because <laughs> right, the right. angle that... Brian Lee O'Malley drew wasn't exactly right. It wasn't a photo reference. He just drew it from 
memory and as a result something didn't line up and they were just there must be a way to do this can do we are we gonna have to use cg how do we make this work what's missing and it turned out the telephone poles just weren't in the right place right right but they were like, <laughs> obsessively trying to recreate the frame and um instead it is this amazing illustration of an illustrated novel like it's just an extra layer of uh, art on top of, of everything you know the 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 batman style popped um punch words for right right term, yeah the, the supers on that and the way that the bass radiates or the music radiates at the very beginning and the way the opening sequence is just so incredibly um seductive and it sort of pulls you into this alternate heightened reality uh it's just so much damn fun too and how do you even begin to describe that to someone who hasn't seen it? Oh, absolutely. And and it is interesting because, uh, you know, a, 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 a story like Walter Mitty, I, I don't know about the film because I haven't, haven't seen the film, but um, the original, and I'm sure it's very different from the original story, which is, you know, a few pages long yeah, at most. Purely um, internal narrative. Yes, it's purely an internal narrative, and there's a definite separation between reality and fiction, whereas in Scott Pilgrim, they accept the fictions as part of the reality and you wouldn't even it's again it's not even clear that it is fictions i mean yeah if it is fiction because there is the idea that you just accept that oh yeah there's a there's a route running through my head running through scott's head that's just easy for me to travel when i when you know (laughs) when i'm working for amazon or whatever just things like that where they accept that as part of of the reality but then i think what makes the film really work is the fact that the characters uh for the most part um, well, the central characters, uh, at least, they have an authenticity to them that is very relatable and and, and real. Yeah. So even though they are, they do have heightened personalities and they are living in heightened circumstances and in a heightened reality. Um, you still kind of you still recognize the authenticity of who they are, and so that's why you care about it, and that's why it's not just an explosion and of of you know crazy editing and and and. Uh, icons and you know because that could be very annoying and distracting if that yeah. were the case and it would have no stakes like if you right. if you establish that none of this is real uh as opposed to it's more real than real it's the way the way the film is is presented to us everything matters although and and they talked about this as well is like if you take it literally he is killing people he, <laughs> people are true. trying to kill scott and scott is successfully murdering them uh just because they turn into coins that doesn't make it right right but right what what they get away with in in an incredible um kind of kind of leap an intuitive leap is that there are no authority figures the only authority figures that are there are the cartoons of the vegan police and there are no cops there are no parents mm-hmm. uh there are no adults really i mean uh, thomas jane i think is the oldest person in the entire movie <laughs> um and he's utterly ineffectual right right but you're dealing with a a reality that is the reality that you kind of have in your head when you're 22 and you don't really know how the world works but you have a pretty good idea i mean i think that just that the subspace route through through scott's brain as an amazon delivery thing is brilliant because no one in 2003 really understood how amazon worked you just <laughs> you, true. you clicked some buttons and a book came that was amazing well this but, didn't make it into the the movies it's uh, and and i don't necessarily remember the books all that well mm. just because it's been a long time since sure, i've read sure. them but uh, what I, I think one of my favorite uh, parts of the, the books that's not in, in the movie um, is uh, Honest Ed's, yeah. where basically gravity doesn't work properly at Honest Ed's. And I, and I just thought that was such a great way of looking at Honest Ed's, because I've definitely been in there and was sure that I was on my way to the exit. Right? And, yes. <laughs> and then I took a wrong turn, turn somewhere, and mm. I was like, where am I? I mean, I think that... You know, and to, to to again to run that through that filter, to run that through that that worldview, I think is is just it. It's what makes the the books work. Is that it 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 makes its own kind of sense, even if it, it isn't necessarily reflective of reality. Yeah, no, it has rules, and we can follow them. Uh, we just have to figure them out on the fly. Right, and, right. And that's the the other, just the way that the the casual living arrangements that Scott and Wallace keep ending up in bed together and apart. There is some sort of personality magnet that makes that okay that makes mm-hmm. it all make sense intuitively um, even though we don't fully understand how Wallace has all the time to go out <laughs> and, and date as aggressively as he right. does but it's just it's also so damn 
it's it's a fantastic hangout movie in that everybody in it is somebody I like. Even the characters who are jerks are still sort of wonderful. That's true. Yeah, there's there, you know even even in as much as there are villains in the movie, uh, Gideon I guess being the, the main the main bad guy sure, in the movie. Um, he you know he has those lines where he's like, oh, I just came up with this evil exes league because you know i was just drunk one night and i sent an email i can't remember if that's the exact line but it is basically like i sent an email do you oh right do you know how long it took me to get this whole thing together two hours (laughs) because he sent out some emails and then it was done um and so yeah there's definitely uh, an element of of um and it, yeah, you're right. It is funny though, because the stakes there there are life and death stakes related to it in a sense, but they definitely temper that by having having people just burst into a bunch of coins as opposed to having any sort of bloodshed or anything like that. Um, I mean, there are flaming swords in this movie. <laughs> Nobody true. even gets singed. There's just like little hints of bruising here and there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the biggest, I honestly think, the biggest threat is probably getting yelled at by Stacy. Uh, <laughs> because that's Anna Kendrick in the perfect pointy role of oh yeah uh, that's a great that's a great antagonist yeah, yeah I really really like that and the, yeah the ca- I mean the cast is extraordinary and I really um, and one of the things about the movie that is something that that I picked up or I mean it's pretty noticeable but uh, it's something that I really gr- uh, gravitated towards was the fact that they do have Asian actors in the movie yeah. um, in key roles, in major roles. And of course, those are characters that were in the, in the books, which uh, were written by a half-Korean uh, um, artist and author, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley. And, and then they, they were faithful to that and, and translated it to the film. And I think Knives Chow is, is a character that I haven't really seen in, in, a, in a major motion picture. And I, what I, I mean, and Ellen Wong is is really, I think, incredible in that role. Um, but that 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 sort of lovelorn um, Asian schoolgirl character uh, isn't something that you see much of, unless you know you're looking at the background of a movie where there's you know a bunch of Asian schoolgirls posing in front of a, a landmark yeah. and then they walk away. Or she, I don't know. She's on the monitors in Cabin in the Woods, but she's not in the main story. Exactly. Or she's exactly. a monster. That would. <laughs> That kind of representation, I mean, it's it's true that I, I just always assumed that it was an essential element of the manga leanings, the things that, that O'Malley is sort of spoofing, but and, and the N- Nintendo video game imagery and things like that. But you're, yeah, it goes deeper than that because there is more... I do Going feel on. like I, I do feel like it's it's a movie that really shows you how not a big deal it would be if you just kind of populated your casts with actors who, uh, who were people of color. Mm. And it's not... And it's sort of an interesting thing because it's, again, I think that her being Chinese is essential to her character, but it's not essential in the way that it is in, you know, the Joy Luck Club or a movie about geishas or whatever the thing is. It doesn't fulfill a specific requirement. Yeah, it's it's not, that's not the raison d'etre of her character. It's it's actually, um, but it does color the way that she interacts with Scott and it colors the way that she, you know, that whole relationship goes. Um, and you know Sacha Bob uh, which I'm not sure is exactly how you pronounce mm-hmm. that, but uh, the fellow who plays um, the first evil ex-boyfriend. I mean, he uh, has sort of a Bollywood-style yeah. <laughs> musical number. That's, introduction. Yeah. yeah, that's how he how he's you know that's that's his his um, his moment in the movie, um, and that's. Again, it, it's totally different from every other fight in the movie. I mean, every fight has its own individual flavor. It's uh, you know the characters determine really how each fight, uh, how each fight is in terms of style and in terms of, um, you know, I mean even the sound design because of course you know the base battle is very sure, different yeah. from Roxy and fleeing her. Uh, I'm not even sure what you'd call power, that. <laughs> I, I think power staves, maybe. Power staves. I just okay, like the I'll sound go with that. that. I'm probably wrong. Um, or that's what Mockingbird uses. It's some. It's a cool oh, sounding. It? I, it's a cool sounding weapon. I, I think. I, I, I mean, I think are. that's a really cool weapon. <laughs> they, they explode, right? So they're not totally staves. Yeah, um, well, the yeah, power part. The power part yeah. explains it. But it, yeah, it's it's all um, it's all very. Uh, precise and, exactly, and yeah. character driven. Like even the fights evolve out of who the fighters are. Right, and the, again the base battle because you know basis or the the essential uh, the essential quality of base being that kind of Q 
keeping time <laughs> and and having just very slow having a very slow build i mean i think that you know that again totally different from from uh, uh something a little more um active like roxy again throwing uh, throwing her stuff around while while uh ramona is throwing her throwing the um oh is it a hammer it's a hammer it's a thor kind of a thor thor hammer, hammer yeah. yeah throwing her thor hammer around um and and yeah and so to have that that uh, that first introduction uh, and then of course the uh, the twins yeah. <laughs> the, the twins who um even though they don't have any dialogue in the film per se i mean they're they're uh, uh japanese very handsome <laughs> and of a very particular style of japanese uh young man um and they're and again yeah their their battle of course involving the uh Involving their music, being able to create these monsters right. that that uh, that are you know pushing forcefully against against the band playing at the exact same time, yeah, which um, is a sort of weird forbidden planet kind of image to it as well. <laughs> the shape that you can only determine through its effect on space instead of an actually defined monster. Right, right. Yeah, um, it's just again he just keeps finding both O'Malley and and, and Wright executing them uh, in three D reality are just finding new ways to express the simplest and pettiest of emotions, right? Which is simply that you're, <laughs> you're dating my girlfriend and I don't like you. Right, right. And 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 I think that, again, that's what makes it so relatable and so interesting. Although it does bring up something that is kind of the one quibble I have about the movie, which I, which I have always had a little bit of trouble getting a handle on, which is the character of Ramona. Mm-hmm. Because I find that the more that I watch the film, and um, and when I I watch the film a number of times, and and on occasion I will maybe pick a different character to kind of be my focus in terms of you know in terms of me tracking their journey throughout the film. Right. And uh, with Ramona, I I kind of feel like I'm missing some parts of her actually falling for Scott. Um, I I kind of almost feel like it. She. That she falls for Scott and invests in that relationship, because that's kind of what the story needs her to do. More than I think it's actually something that comes motivated from her character. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even that I think that she's a one-dimensional character, because I don't. I do think that they, you know, that she's given, you know, she's given on her backstory, and she's she's definitely and you know Mary Elizabeth Winstead is such a soulful actor, and so she really grounds that character. But I feel like I'm missing, uh, you know, that I'm filling. I feel like I'm filling in gaps yeah. in terms of really buying into the relation, uh, buying into the relationship with Scott, and also with Gideon to an extent. Um, although I think with with Gideon, I think we we are kind of buying a little bit that the access he has to her brain is a little bit that thing where people can sometimes just have an effect on you and you don't know why and, yeah. <laughs> and you and you know you'll let yourself be treated badly in a relationship uh because of it and yeah. so i i kind of i you know I, I definitely see where that comes from but at the same time i do you know movies that have male protagonists um where there is a romantic element i i do think sometimes that uh you know the, the female character might not necessarily get the same extent of motivation and yeah. and and substance um, in order to you know figure out how it is that the kind of selfish emotionally immature protagonist who you know who's who's about to learn something from this hot amazing woman <laughs> that he's about yeah. to meet um, how that you know how that how, how that actually works for on her end and how that actually affects her on her end yeah we we talked about that actually in 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 the Sarah and, and right and me uh, we discussed it in the first wave of interviews in the summer of 2010 when they brought the film to town and and one of the things that came up was that we are it is it's entirely possible that until the very end of the film we don't really see Ramona for who she is or who she really is because we're getting Scott's version of her and Scott's version of Gideon who is incredibly successful and put together and suave and he's kind of a dick but he still gets Ramona to listen to him so obviously he must be using some sort of evil magic right right um, <laughs> and uh, the Ramona that we do see is maybe a little unknowable because Scott isn't trying and that she is the shiny thing that he's fixated on. And that that's... A, I'm actually quoting at this point. That's exactly what they said. Right, right. She's the next shiny thing. She's the prize in the video game of his life. And so he perceives her as 
perfect and, and wonderful and totally put together. And she's so confident that she barely has time to talk to him. And, you know, that just that little throwaway, dude, I changed my hair every couple of weeks. Right, right. She just doesn't care how he feels, which isn't true, probably, because she's falling for him as well, supposedly. Mm-hmm. But from Scott's limited, like, extremely limited perspective, that's all he can process is like, this girl is awesome and I have to be there and I have to be with her and I will do anything to to be with her and that's what the seven X's come in and mm-hmm. when we see what challenges really mean. But I, I think that it's it's unfortunately intentional that Ramona is sort of a two-dimensional figure for most of the movie. That Winstead impl- imbues her with a lot of humanity. She sort of lets it peek through. But yeah, it is a limited perspective. I think that, and and what's interesting about that is, I definitely understand how, how that is because the film very much is um, whether or not it's reality or not, it's very much uh, all put through Scott's point of view and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the way that he sees the world. Um, and it's sort of interesting uh, because I did, uh, before I uh, literally just on the weekend, take a look at the uh, deleted scenes on the DVD, yeah. <laughs> which was sort of interesting because I, I, you know, I knew I was coming to talk about it. So I, I thought, I wonder what I could actually learn from, from, from seeing this. And there's the first date scene, which um, they do, they have a couple of versions of it on the DVD, yeah, yeah. where there's a middle section that's not in the finished film. Where you actually see her warm up to Scott a little bit, where she's laughing, she tells a joke about, uh, you know, she's joking around about the fact that she knows she can tell that Scott and Wallace are sleeping in the same bed, and and it's it's just a it's a really brief, you know, it's just a a, it's just a little middle section there, but but when I watch the scene in the movie, that's always the scene where I'm like, I don't. I don't I don't see how we get from here to here. Right, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. that might be it. I mean that's that's kind of the the um the moment where I'm like and and so and so I I definitely can appreciate that it was a deliberate choice in the sense that, you know, Scott really does learn something about himself again, the power of self-awareness. He does, you know, learn about how he he does get a point of view on how he's been treating both Ramona and Knives and and um, I, I I guess it, it is something though where I just I, I feel like I feel like I really want to be rooting for them. Yeah. And 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 so it it can be you know at times it is challenging to root for Scott when he's being particularly particularly selfish or yeah. particularly you know you know self absorbed. Yeah. Um, so I you know uh, but again I. Um, I do think, I mean, listen, I've seen movies that are such horrible, egregious examples of them not caring, you know, what the woman wants in the situation. And I do think that they, as I mentioned, I do think that she has a character that is intriguing and that they also uh, attempt to establish because she does, you know, she does kind of have a little bit of a mysterious past in a sense. I mean, there's that that thing where they're like, she's from New York, and that's, of course, such a Toronto thing to kind of be whispering about people who are are from New York. Um, And, uh, and, and, and I think that the other, the other characters in the film, I mean, the further away you get from Scott, I think the characters are by necessity a little more uh, outlandish in their construction and not necessarily, don't necessarily have all the dimensions there. But, I mean, even a character like Envy Adams, I think you can see that, that little bit of vulnerability from when she was in a relationship with, with Scott. So even though we don't get a lot of her, um, and I love Brie Larson, I mean, yeah. that, that's one of the movies where I, I, I don't see Envy Adams in any of the other parts that she's done, and it's, I think it's remarkable. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, when I sat down with her at TIFF this year, it was just like, all that count, all that matters is that I'm sitting down with Envy Adams. Like, she's, <laughs> right. I've seen Short Term Twelve. I know she's a phenomenal actor. Oh, Short Term Twelve, yeah, it's an amazing right? movie. Yeah, she's fantastic, and she's great in Room. And you know, by the, this drops on the, I want to say the fifteenth or sixteenth. So in ten days, hopefully, she'll have an Oscar for that. And oh that'll yeah, be yeah, great. of course, yeah. And then we can just add her to the list of incredible talents that bursts out of this movie already. You know, right, right. Things that are already <laughs> resident in there. And uh, yeah, Envy Adams is in, what, two scenes? Just an incredible, fully drawn character. With and a- she has to sell the line, you punched my boyfriend so hard, he burst. Yeah. And I find that, I think that might be the hardest line in the whole <laughs> film to sell, where, you cu- where again, you c- it has to be grounded in something. Yeah. and It has to have feeling. 
Exactly. Instead of, <laughs> instead of like a snide whip crack of the line at the end. Yeah. And Roxy, too. I mean, Mia yeah, Whitman yeah. does that. She manages to find real hurt. And not just because she got punched in the boob, which is a fantastic <laughs> line in the movie, too. But just the that weird indignity, uh, indignance that she brings to the role of someone who is... Presumably she has enough of her stuff together that she's already moved on, but she's right, still right. she's still a little hurt, and she's still letting that show. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and again, like uh, uh, Anna Kendrick and, and Mae Whitman and Brie Larson, I mean, they've all had opportunities to carry movies uh, in the last, you know, a few years where they're, you know, the, the, the top build, yeah. uh, <laughs> top build person, number one on the call sheet, and, and it's it's extraordinary, the the... The range that they have, and then and then to have you know, and to to be able to watch a movie where they're all, you know, firing on all cylinders, yeah. uh, in characters that are so unlike uh, you know characters that they would probably ever get to play again, mm-hmm. um, is 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 one of the fun parts of the movie for sure. Yeah, I mean the casting were like right down the line. There isn't a role that's out of place. Um, you know, like Chris Evans, uh, just perfectly doing Lucas Lee. As I think I like Chris watching Chris Evans because of this movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I it's that. clear that from 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 Scott Pilgrim that he got it and he has a sense of humor yeah. about about the kind of action hero archetype. Um, and yeah, and that's that's a great that that is a really good, <laughs> that is a really terrific character. Just that marvelous entitled idiocy that he brings to it. Oh, my goodness, um, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then like he's less than a year from Captain America, where he'll right, be completely right, yeah. different in the same sort of part. Um, or or I'm forgetting somebody else. Like it really is a, a murderer's row of, of walk-on roles. You've got Brandon Routh and uh, even yeah, Jason Schwartzman as as Gideon Graves is just perfectly. Dickish, like it is the it is the role he was born. Having interviewed him a few times, it is the role he was born to play. Um, but he's just so good at it, and I I don't mean that in a cruel way. There's a bit of a there's just a bit of a snark to his personality. Oh, he leans into it. Yeah, yeah he and really he just does. It right yeah, up. and and I I forgot to mention Allison Pill, who's probably oh god yeah. Uh, I mean, she she might even be my favorite character in the film. I mean, her you know her asides and her or I guess interjections are just so they're they're just so dead on. They're delivered with such deadpan precision yeah. that yeah, it's. Uh, I yeah, her character. I think I. Um, that's true. She is the most deadpan and effective in a movie that also has Aubrey Plaza in it. Yeah, that's true. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> I mean, Aubrey Plaza is uh, really fun in the movie too. But what? But because uh, because Allison Pill's character um, Kim, hmm. she has the history with Scott. Um, I think that also lends that little bit of edge to what she's doing, uh, because of course you know in the first scene when, you know, we find out that. Uh, he has his fake teenage girlfriend, where Scott has his fake teenage girlfriend. Um, she's the she's the first one to kind of give him shit about that. But mm-hmm. but you know you you kind of realize later on in the film like oh he probably wasn't that cool to Kim when yeah. they were going out because um, they were probably pretty young, and because they're in this band together they've never probably really been uh, been too far from each other at any point in time. And somehow she kind of communicates that <laughs> without yeah. without really saying anything. I mean, there's a couple of points where they literally just cut to her looking. Uh, I don't I, I don't know if the death glare is the right is it's the right a, description from yeah. it, but it's it's kind it's of a this glare side eye kind of thing <laughs> that I, I that works so well. And actually, one of the one of the things that I noticed this time through um, is literally the part where they're just going to the party, and it's um, it's uh, Scott. And then young Neil, right? And then you just see Kim, who's a little bit off to the side, and they are, and she's standing stock still. <laughs> she is just standing stock still, while they do their little bit about this sucks, this sucks, and they're standing quite still as well. Yeah. But Kim isn't saying but anything, she's, yeah, and she's, she's just absolutely a statue. It's it, it's a really uh, it, it's it's th- those kinds of details that I, I really appreciate about the film. I mean, even just really small things like the way that Scott wipes his hands after he's washed them are they lend so much to deepening the character and just being really good for a laugh. But they, you know, they are 
obviously particularly chosen details that yeah, yeah. that make the you know that go into a film and and that lets us into the other side of the movie which uh, in, in addition to the incredible uh, miracle of casting and direction of the actors you have a film that is like in terms of its technical accomplishments just magnificent to watch uh, to again to, to take a story this small and and one could argue disposable sure, because sure. you know like this could be in the wrong hands this could just be an MTV party movie right right <laughs> um, which would be fine but this one is so much more interesting sorry I apologize once oh, again to right. our listeners for the <laughs> snoring dog someday I will figure out an audacity hack that removes the snoring but uh, it's not too there bad yet. it's too bad Dexter isn't a, a, a an Edgar Wright fan <laughs> he might <laughs> be a little more <laughs> awake they have met um, there is that the first uh, the first summer we got Dexter was the year that Scott Pilgrim opened, and so um, Kate and I were walking him. We couldn't have had him for more than two or three weeks. Uh, the weekend of the um, Scott Pilgrim Toronto press day, and uh, bumped into Edgar and Anna Kendrick just wandering around Chinatown, and um, we introduced them. and, and uh, Ever since then, Anna always asks after him and makes <laughs> me show photographic evidence that I'm treating him well. Right, right. Uh, well, so, it was it was very exciting for the movie to be in town. I mean, that it was. Kind of great it was it was a very cool thing i uh you know edgar wright was programming over at the bloor cinema uh before it was the hot dog cinema i I was there for um double bill pope which was uh, oh nice the double bill they did um of uh army of darkness and team america world police um, which were both uh both cinematographed (laughs) the cinematographer of both those films was bill pope who was of course the cinematographer of scott pilgrim and uh, and and yeah, and, and Edgar Wright, uh, you know, chatted with him on stage about um, about uh, about making those films, which are obviously very very unique films in terms of uh, the their level of complexity. Um, mm-hmm. The puppets in Team America, for one. Sure. Um, anyway, but it was uh, yeah, it was fu- it was a fun thing. He he did that, and then you know everybody who was working in the film business at the time. I mean, if they weren't working on it, they knew somebody who was working on it. It touched. It yeah. touched everybody in some way. Well, it was a very big, complicated shoot, too. It went on for months and months, and, and most of the post was done here as well, I believe, and so it just kept everything going. I would walk down Bloor and see the fake snow piled up, you know, in the streets, and, and, uh, and as I recall, they, um, re- they kind of, did they re- or possibly they built it on a soundstage a set, um, because Lee's Palace had been renovated since the time. Yeah, they did have to That uh, it. it was in the books, so they, they, they either made a set or changed it or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if he told me about it or if it came up somewhere else and I remember it, but they did have to recreate uh, Lee's Palace. Uh, Jackie Chan, coverage. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going through the, the uh, transcript of our interview just because I thought it would be easier and we're talking about uh, Scott Pilgrim fighting salmon. <laughs> talking about salmon. Stephen Chow, yeah, these are all the things that he. Was oh, discussing. Stephen Chow movie, yeah, I could Stephen see Chow how Stephen Chow movies could be um, an inspiration into <laughs> into a film like this one. Yeah, it's um, Michael Sarah was really quiet and very kind of calm for the first five minutes of our conversation, and then Edgar mentioned showing him um, Park Chan Wook movies and uh, Jackie Chan and Pang Cheng and. Uh, he suddenly just perks right up and starts talking about which move he preferred in 36 Chambers of Shaolin and all that. <laughs> and it's just, he finally committed to the conversation. And in a weird way, that sort of felt like um, who Scott is, where right, you really right, have to yeah. engage his interest to get him to, com- to comment. And <laughs> uh, I don't know where this is. I'm looking for it. There's a thing here about Indian restaurants and how raccoons can fuck you up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, ra- yeah, raccoons yeah. in Toronto. There aren't any raccoons my, uh... in the movie, but you figure there would be. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where it is. It was. It must be somewhere else in there. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, or was it Brandon Rath? Mm, yeah, uh, just here's a, yeah here's a quote of uh, I didn't realize how glowy my eyes were going to be. <laughs> but, you know, it's that's that's something about the film that uh, that I think when you have characters that are this heightened or have sort of a comedic purpose or that kind of thing um the actors really have to trust that 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 the director isn't going to make them look like an idiot i mean that's kind of the biggest that might be the biggest thing about about doing a part like that is that you're you you want to be able to um 
you want to be able to just have the actress feel totally comfortable just to 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 get out there and try something and it doesn't necessarily mean that um you know that they can just do anything that they want but if the director has the vision in mind or the ideas in mind for what they want to do and then the actor can kind of run with it sometimes it means they they that they will have to uh protect that performance in editing because there may be takes or things that they try that end up being totally wrong for the uh, for the entire uh, you know for the overall uh, for the overall film and I, and of course that's true of any movie I mean that's certainly not unique to uh, to a movie like this one but I, I definitely think that um, a movie like this one probably has a little more mar- a little more possibility for falling flat on its face if that doesn't work out really well <laughs> and I think yeah. and I think that's what's so remarkable about it to me is that they can kind of you know have those characters that uh, are a little bit more out there and then have the, the the characters that are a bit more grounded but are still you know funny and absurd in their way and and have it feel totally perfect for the environment that they're in and not have it feel like jarring have it have it feel jarring at any point really yeah well even one actor out of out of tone or there's so many plates to keep in the air there's the performances then there's the style of the cinematography then there's the score and the the music the soundtrack things that you can't even account for on the day when you're shooting and it all just yeah i mean the thing about the thing that amazes me about edgar wright is that he can build the movie in his head as he's Shooting it like now he's cutting it in his head. The the fight scenes in in Scott Pilgrim's uh, a lot of them and, and especially the final conflict between Scott and Gideon was really just a few frames at a time. They would do entire setups right. and even but even in the dialogue scenes um, and this was something else that, that he had said that he and Pope decided that because they were trying to replicate a comic book um, aesthetic, no two shots could have the same setup. If you were cutting back from an over-the-shoulder, the mm-hmm. camera would still have to be moved because if you were drawing it, you wouldn't be able to replicate it exactly. Right, So right. everything had to be just the littlest piece to the left or the right or, or up or down or the light had to be different. Something had to change in every shot. You could never go back to an existing setup. And that kind of obsessive planning, I think, is the only way you can make a movie that's this complex and make it look like you had it in mind all along. Like the only way to do it as if it was totally off the cuff, is to plan every single aspect of it. <laughs> right, and then right. still somehow allow for life in the performances, which is just like the, there's timing and there are little moments of reaction and delivery that you can't account for. They have to happen on the, in the moment. Yeah, Edgar Wright's a filmmaker that I, when I see his movies, I really just feel like he has total understanding and control over the tools that he has at his disposal. Uh, yeah. Disposal. I almost said disposable. Uh, <laughs> um I think that that the editing in his films is is particularly noteworthy and it's not even anything that you can I mean editing is one of again one of those 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 uh, skills that it's it's hard to really say anything specific about it because it's like oh you're cutting here instead of here mm-hmm. but of course if you cut here instead of here that can change that can create a laugh where there wasn't one that yeah. can change the you know I, I you know I think of a, a detail like that running gag of Scott thinking his hair is too shaggy and him being self-conscious about it because in his previous relationship um, his girlfriend would make note of that and so he wears his uh, hunter's cap um, he throws his hunter's cap on top of it um, and the, and you know the joke of course is that every time you cut back to him he's already got the hunter's cap on yeah. it's not that you watch him putting it on and it's it's that he actually has it on and I think that I think I think part of that can be the the um, can be attributed to a comic book style as well, because of course sequential art is missing things in, in, in between sure, yeah, yeah. in between pictures. Um, but but that's also where the laugh is. The laugh is is that is that and it, and it works and and it works within the style of the movie. It's yeah. not a thing where you know it's it it can be difficult. I think in 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 some of these big comedies where they'll they'll put something in the movie specifically just to get a laugh. But it's something that throws you out of the reality of whatever whatever reality that movie has built up for itself. Whereas with Scott Pilgrim, from the word go, they've built up this reality that allows them to have jokes like that <laughs> in the film and total and have it totally be a part of uh, part of. Again, as you're saying, it's something they've totally planned. It's something they've figured out. Okay, this 
this is the kind of joke, even if they came up with it on the day, they know that it's going to be able to cut into the movie and not be something that sticks out. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, having seen the, the bonus features on Shaun of the Dead, and Hot, the, there's this wonderful 15-minute whiteboard sequence on the Shaun DVD and Blu-ray where Wright and Simon Pegg run us through the entire movie act for act by flipping the pages of a giant whiteboard on which they've they've basically just sketched out every scene and the meaning of given moments and all the jokes and callbacks that are going to echo and the emotional resonance and they do it the day before shooting was supposed to start I think just to prove that they had it all in their heads <laughs> right and it is simultaneously so exhaustively detailed and so enthusiastic about the possibilities that it allows them the way of the way that they can build these nested storylines into a narrative that takes place over 24 hours and is just rushed and panicked and a horror film that is as valid as a horror film as it is a relationship picture and coming of age movie the, 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 they're just bursting with ideas and I don't doubt that he approached Scott Pilgrim the same way I don't think there's a I don't think he's capable of making a movie without that level of uh, resonance or, or that interest in resonance that he he so desperately needs to make the movie more than just what it's about. It has to be about six or seven other things, and they all have to come together in a in a an almost. I mean, Scott Pilgrim more than any of his other films, it sticks the landing so gracefully that you almost don't know that it's over. When it ends, it just it has this little poof kind of feeling where it right, just all right. evaporates, and either it's evaporating because Scott is leaving this part of himself behind and moving on to maturity or because oh you know we've had we've had a lot of fun folks maybe it's time to go home now it doesn't even matter uh because your experience has been steered so beautifully and and you've had the opportunity to notice all this wonderful stuff and and it's just such an elegant ending for a film that is so frenzied and chaotic right yeah that it feels like you've leveled up along with the movie and that, that, and I do I do appreciate that about the film because it uh, uh, you know to end to end a film that has that much going on in it yeah in in a in a really simple um, and and I say simple because that's deceptive to to end something that simply but yeah, yeah. In, or it's it's deceptively difficult to end something that simply um, it really is about the relationships it really is about the relationships with. Well, it's it's a, it is about knives, but it's mostly about about you know Ramona and what, and again they do kind of leave that open, right? Because it's not that they've decided anything; it's not a happily ever after scenario. But it, and of course, you know the the last thing that you see on the screen is the continue, yeah. uh, the video game continue screen, um, with the question mark at the end of it, and and but and again that is that it it's you really have to know what your movie is about and really be able to to zero in on the core of that movie in order to be confident about about ending it um in that way in 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 a way that's not the usual um you know dipping the woman and, yeah. <laughs> and having the having the the screen the you know the hollywood screen kiss or yeah, no, you know whatever whatever the Whatever the equivalent would be in modern day, it's triumphant, but it's ambiguous and and or ambivalent, and it's kind of wonderful. Like this is over, but now what? Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he gives it. He gives us so much. Like it's bristling with potential. David Kep, uh, when I interviewed him for Ghost Town, said that he has a thing about ending movies on the possibility of happiness. It's much more interesting to him to go with that instead of a happily ever after because nobody really believes in happily ever after because relationships, even after the initial uh, endurance test of winning someone over, mm-hmm. relationships are still work and you you have to work at being happy and you have to fight for the possibility of happiness. And so, you know, Ghost Town ends with um, Taylor saying, I have a problem with my smile and Ricky Gervais saying, I can help you with that. Right, and, right. And Scott Pilgrim kind of does the same thing in that you are sending these characters off onto the real adventure of coexisting uh, as equals or at least as partners and figuring out what that means. And, I, you know, I'm not sure Scott is ready for that, but I also think that I want to believe that Ramona will be a little more patient than she has been up until now and right, maybe right. help him get there. Yeah, for sure. Because I'm an optimist. <laughs> and I want these two crazy kids with their giant hammers and their yeah, sure. smashy coins to, to be friends. <laughs> Well, you you do you do uh, I think you do see the possibilities, you know, and that's yeah. that's, you know, and that's uh, yeah, that's a that's a, that can be a nice thing, for sure. Yeah. 
And uh, I mean, obviously, people connect to that too because if the ending didn't work, they wouldn't be coming. You know, you wouldn't come back to it uh, as wholeheartedly as they are. And and certainly, the crowd at the at the royal the other week was just. I mean, there were about six Ramonas, and I, I counted a couple of Kniveses, at least at least one Scott. Although it's hard to tell because they kind of blend into each other. <laughs> Uh, like when you see a Scott, do you think, "Oh, that's Scott," or do you think, "Oh, is that just a guy yeah, on the streets a, of Toronto?" That's a cold guy in Toronto in January, and it was actually it was the coldest night of the year, which was even more right, perfect right. Film it. for a film where for a year where we haven't had much of a winter. That was the the elements aligned, and it was just miserably cold. I mean, yeah, there are good sixty or seventy people outside waiting, and yeah, we had to turn yeah. them away. Oh. I felt terrible, but. Um, Oh, it was so great to see the room light up, though. When when um, we had a, a Colin Geddes, who runs the Royal, had man, had reached out to Edgar and gotten him to record a little, like a sixty-five second clip. Yeah, so, I heard. Right? Yeah, it's on the it's on the Facebook. Oh, great! Uh, and it's just oh, it's so swell. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's just he's clearly so happy with the movie he made, and so happy that people are still coming out to see it and and discovering it. And uh, I think he must have been in Los Angeles, but he looked cold on our behalf. Right. He looked like he was, he looked like he was feeling it along with us. Well, I will. Uh, just one more thing about Please, about yeah. the uh, about the film, which is that um, even though there is a lot going on, I mean, there's you know the the action scenes especially. You always you're always oriented. It's never a disorienting experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 shooting, that's editing, that's all those things, where you know. You you do, it's not just cuts for the sake of cuts. It's not speed for the sake of speed. You really do understand what's happening at every moment. It's, comp- it's totally comprehensible, and it's it and you know that's a sign that the film obviously was very well put together, and uh, and so I I think you know because I I do you know I have met some people who are not fans of Scott Pilgrim and really? yeah. <laughs> do, do you still speak do to I them? still speak to them? <laughs> it's a, it, that was one of the most interesting things about uh, about when the movie first came out because a lot you know I do know a lot of people went to see it at um, and either because they knew it was a Toronto set film or whatever whatever the reasons I you know I'm sure. You know, I'm sure everybody everybody looked at it and 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 had a take on what it might be, and then I think when some people came out of it, they maybe it wasn't what they expected it to be, right. and and I do think that's the, and I tried to I have tried to watch the film where I I'm trying to understand uh, how some some people could find it to be a lot or to be obnoxious in some way or and and of course I I because I don't I don't really really get that sense but. But I do think there's a difference between a film that's frantic for the sake of being frantic, or or you know too fast and too, too too cutty as it were. Yeah. And and I just don't I, I uh, I'm I just don't think this film is that. I, I do think that at every moment I really am following what it is that they want me to follow in the story. Um, and that's a really you know boring way of saying that I really like the movie, I guess. But but yeah, but I get what you mean. Like it allows you to enjoy it mm-hmm. in all of its excess, in all of its. Uh, in all of its motion and action and speed, but it doesn't overwhelm. It's it's like eating the best. Like for me, the 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 thing I've always fallen back on is like it's the best bowl of popcorn I've ever had. Right, uh, right. And by the time the movie came out, I was off popcorn because you hit forty and it all goes to hell. And my, my young <laughs> guy said, "No, you got to stop eating that. They're like razor blades for your colon." That's a quote too. Oh dear. Uh, so I haven't had popcorn in six years, but Scott Pilgrim makes me want popcorn again. Right, right. Damn you, Edgar. <laughs> Damn you all to hell. Well, I thought you might have been referring to actual, like, action movies that were just getting you bored because it was just the same thing over and well, over and over yeah, again. Yeah, the monotony you know? of, the, of, the, of the everything Michael Bay does kind of approach, where, like, I know he's my... He's my uh, whipping boy? Whipping boy, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to come up with... There's a horse metaphor that's even better. Uh, but he is, yeah, he is absolutely my go-to goat on this show where if I need to come up with an example of cinema that just makes you sad for experiencing it it's Michael Bay and and again Edgar managed to do that uh, he managed to redeem Michael Bay with the Bad Boys 2 jokes in uh, in Hot Fuzz right, and execute them perfectly <laughs> um, but uh, you know I just the Benghazi movie I think I saw the Benghazi movie two days after the, the Scott Pilgrim screening and it's exactly what Scott Pilgrim isn't which is that it is exhaustively frenetic and and cut to within an not even within an inch of its life but to millimeters of its 
carotid artery where just if you cut anymore it will cease to have any meaning and it was shot with handheld video and it's muddy and dirty and it's supposed to look real but it's just confusing maybe (laughs) well it it becomes a it becomes a paste like it just it's it's action cutting as an anesthetic somehow or a sedative because you can't invest in anything so you just stop you just stop caring Uh, i feel that way about all the transformers movies because it's just two and a quarter or two and a half or two and three quarter hours of software fighting software while the camera (laughs) swings around and every shot is gorgeous and looks like car commercials because it kind of is but i don't care i just i want to care so much at the beginning of every movie because that will keep me invested and it won't be as boring sure time will go by faster and Two hours can feel like forever yeah. if you're not involved. If you're not invested in, oh, in what's God, happening, yes, yeah. Um, and and Edgar's movies all go by like bullet trains. And there's a, there there's an emotional investment. And I mean, I still I will argue and have argued and have written it down and everything that I think Shaun of the Dead is the film of the last decade of the two, of the first ten years of two thousands because it is an active work of art that perfects the mashup. I mean, it's it is Galaxy Quest. I think is the first one. Oh yeah, it yeah. Kind of smashes together comedy and science fiction in a way that no one had tried before. Mm-hmm. This the Star Trek aspect of it and the self-reflexive thing. But Sean, by functioning as a horror movie and as a, a coming-of-age story and as a love story, with real stakes, um, and characters whose death has meaning, which even the most successful horror films don't always manage. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's. A new thing, and it has yet to be duplicated. I don't think anybody's even come close to figuring it out the way that that Wright and Peg did. Uh, and what he's done since is build on that potential while release by releasing movies that are as involved and as invested with the genre that they're working in. Um, in that Hot Fuzz deconstructs the the, the Michael Bay slash um, Catherine Bigelow. Uh, Joel Silver action production mm-hmm. in the way that The World's End is, uh, as he put it, with an AI, where he <laughs> finds this incredible middle ground between the intervention movie narrative and the science fiction apocalypse. Right, right. And Scott Pilgrim invents a genre that had never been truly caught before, which is the graphic novel movie, in that it works on its own. If you've never read a comic book, you'll get it. You can understand the tropes that he's using. But it also brings to life an entire um, slice of culture and not just western or or manga culture but global illustration culture and it makes you understand why people will occasionally say oh comic books are just storyboards for movies well in this case we actually have a movie that was storyboarded from a comic book but found everything it found the life in it and right right you know, in the rearview mirror, I th- I, Scott Pilgrim's right up there with Sean now for me, and I, I'm kind of surprised by that because when I saw it the first time, I thought, ah, well, both know. of the movies are. I mean, I love them both. I yeah, mean, it's they're so and they're so different from each other mm-hmm. to 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 kind of put them up next to each other. It's, it's they're com- they're com- they could be companion pieces more than I think they're in competition with yeah. each other. Well, but that's the surprise. The first time I saw Scott Pilgrim, I thought, ooh, that should have been a half hour longer. It just feels so compressed. And now, of course, I realize that's part of it. That's the right, reason right. it feels compressed is because it is overstuffed with all this wonderful. Well, the material. thing is, I, like, I don't I don't play video games. I am a casual comic book comic book reader, and I. And my tastes tend a little bit more towards Adrienne Tomenet and Daniel Close and that okay. kind of thing. Um, and so I, I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever read any manga-inspired or manga-style books uh, before or after Scott Pilgrim. And yet somehow the movie still hits me right in the pleasure center. It's right in. It hits the, it hits the part of me that that I guess it's the the, the cinephile in me. It must be the, the just the mastery over. Uh, you know, over all of the the elements that that really just that works so well, and and you know, turns it into this fun concoction. I think that's, um, I, I I think, and I think if you're somebody who does uh, play video games and read comic books, in you know this, read a lot of superhero comics and that kind of thing. I think it definitely. It, I imagine it's something that is that feels much feels personal almost. It feels like something that. Where you know you can't, maybe you maybe you are Scott maybe you are that guy maybe you 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 know you have that have that um, that affinity for the same things and feel the same things that he does and even if I'm not if even if I don't relate 
in the specific to Scott Pilgrim, I relate to him on a, you know, on the level that I think I'm expected to as an audience member. Yeah. I think I see myself as more of a young Neil. <laughs> Just uncertain. Absolutely. Navigating very carefully through the environment. And sure, sure. I don't offend anybody. And, and hey, now he's Neil, so, you know, That's true. baby steps, be, right? He gets to be proper Neil. <laughs> yeah. It did occur to me, watching Scott Pilgrim again, just prepping for this, that someone else is carrying it on and doing the same thing, and that's the people making Man Seeking Woman, uh, the Jay oh, Baruchel show on FXX. Okay. They're the only ones I've seen that are using the same sort of flexible reality principle that Scott Pilgrim does, where the most absurd and, and impossible things happen, and the characters all react to them almost in a blasé manner, and the way that things simply are. And it took me, I've been watching the show since it started airing last year, and it took me this long to figure it out, to put them together. It's like, oh, that's actually the same principle. Someone else is doing it on a teeny, teeny, teeny budget, but it's still here. They're stu- they shoot it in Toronto with a that's Canadian right, yeah. lead, and maybe, we, maybe we're the only nationality <laughs> that's flexible enough to get away with it. Well, I, I I've I've seen a bit of the show. I have I uh, haven't um, just because I I, uh, I I don't have the channel that it's on. <laughs> I don't think um, I haven't yet been able to to catch up on the rest of it. But but it is interesting that it's not it hasn't been more widely attempted. I guess yeah. in a way where um, where yeah where that again that as you mentioned the flexible reality. I mean it, it's such an interesting concept and it seems like it would be very rich for. Uh, a rich vein to mine for a TV series, but uh, it, it, I, I will have to. I'll actually have to check it out and yeah. see because uh, that that's very cool. It's definitely worth seeing, and the uh, because it's shot in Toronto, the talent base is remarkable. Yeah, well, well, there you go. It's uh, Canada's always the stand-in yeah. for somebody else, and it's, so that's kind of what's great about Scott Pilgrim is that you can kind of you, you actually have a have a thing that's set here. Yeah, we get to own it. Uh, which is kind of marvelous, um, and and this brings us to the the question that closes the show, which is what of if anything of, of Scott Pilgrim have you incorporated into your work or stolen or borrowed or, or relied upon? I mean, I know that in End of Days Incorporated, we're not explicitly located in Toronto, but the landscape is sort of part of it. It is. Um, I will say that I think Scott Pilgrim and Edgar Wright's films are more a source of inspiration for me um, than something that I think I'm pulling specific things from. Um, But the feature film I have coming out this week, End of Days, Inc., it is a film that is totally different in content, themes, etc., style, etc., etc., but it is a little bit of a a genre hybrid that has characters that are a little bit further up and down the outlandish scale than um, the average naturalistic feature film. So in that sense, I will say that I think I've watched a lot of Edgar Wright's films just to get a sense of how he accomplishes that, about, you know, trying to make sure that um, when cutting performances, like getting that right mix of, of humor, but then also making sure that you're grounding the characters that need to be grounded in order for the audience to be able to follow along. So it's not something that's just absurd, or it's not something that they can just throw away necessarily um but yeah i think that i I mean i think that's it's it's something to aspire to to have that kind of uh that kind of control and and focus and and mastery over over you know the filmmaking process where you can make something that people really respond to and you know that's something i think all filmmakers aspire to do yeah well and you also had mentioned the uh, the, re- the question of representation in Scott Pilgrim, and, and it seemed that in End of Days that Paul... Uh, Paul Lee, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is definitely... He kind of gets the showcase part without going into detail, uh, just based on what you allow him to do versus what everybody else is doing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Paul, uh, Paul Lee's character, uh, which, you know, this, the script was not written with any particular actor in mind, and it certainly wasn't written with actors of any particular... Um, you know, race in mind. Mm -hmm. And Paul, I just, uh, I felt like he could embody the stuck up pretentious (laughs) aspects of that character, as well as what he has to do later on in the film, which is, which is much different and, and and much more, uh, shall we say more broadly comic? More broad. Yeah. Let's put it that Say that more broadly comic. (laughs) But he is like, just having seen him, um, over the last couple of years, where he's where he's gone and what he's doing, it is it's really a pleasure to see him just Cut loose. doing that. Yeah. Be his be his true self. Let's be honest. That's <laughs> that's Paul Lee being his true self when he's at his most uh, broadly comic. Well, he's very good at it. <laughs> 
to find the right um, mix of people in an ensemble is 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 always uh, you know is always a challenge and it's always something that um, that does require you to be looking at the whole picture and not just each individual and and yes I mean of course you know again looking at the cast of Scott Pilgrim that's really remarkable and and I and I actually think I lucked out pretty well in the cast that I have for <laughs> for End of Days Inc I mean uh, I think they all have they all have uh, really 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 strong they had a really strong understanding of what we were doing and they really trusted trusted me and and uh yeah i think that's all that's all you can really ask for yeah and it's going to release now so do you have anything else coming up is there something you're working on um i'm trying to work on some scripts but it's uh it's it takes a long time to get those off the ground and that type of thing um one of the fun things i've been able to do over the last while is that i'm a, a creative consultant on a series that karen walton is developing it's the adaptation of the Ava Lee novels um, that a- oh, Ian yeah. Hamilton writes. I didn't know you were doing that one. That's great. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, Karen's uh, just an incredible writer, and and what's been really fun about it is to actually be able to uh, bring some of um, my feedback to something that isn't uh, isn't mine, <laughs> yeah. where you know I I get the fun part where I get to to you know look at scripts and and outlines and stuff and and talk about. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and give feedback on that. And then she has to do all the heavy lifting <laughs> at this point. So, um, and, uh, yeah, so that's been, that's been something that's really, really fun to, uh, really fun to do. And, and I, I, my fingers are crossed for her because I, I really do hope that she, she can get a show on the air. Yeah. If not this one, then another one. And, uh, and yeah, um, I think, is there anything else? Did we miss anything? I think we got it all covered, but I, th- I think we nailed it. I think we <laughs> totally figured out Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we've, we, we, this is it. This is it guys. Good. Well, <laughs> you can still watch it again, but now you'll be enlightened. Awesome. My thanks to Jennifer Liao whose new movie End of Days, Inc. opens in Toronto at the Carlton Cinemas this Friday, February 19th, and screens in the Vancouver International Women in Film Festival March 11th. Follow the movie on Twitter at End of Days, Inc., all one word, and Inc. is with a C, for more theatrical dates and VOD release information. You can find Jennifer on Twitter at AverageGen, all one word, with two N's in Jen, and you can find Scott Pilgrim vs. the World in a jam-packed Blu-ray and DVD special edition from Universal Studios Home Entertainment and for rental or sale on iTunes and Google Play you should buy it. It's epic. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, I would be totally in lesbians with you for that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>